the day-to-day life of a Christian is awkward. Let me explain. Christians believe that Jesus has declared victory over the darkness, yet there is still darkness. We believe that Jesus has finished the work of redemption, yet many of his people are yet lost. We believe that Jesus has defeated sin, yet I still struggle against remaining sin. We believe that Jesus is the King, yet I still vote for governors and presidents and senators and representatives. The Christian experience reflects a very tangible tension between the already and the not yet. And the day-to-day life of a Christian resonates that tension. We get angry with one another, though we are ministers of reconciliation. We plead for physical healing for the sick, eagerly awaiting the redemption of our broken bodies. A redemption which, by the way, Christ has secured in a work that was finished 2,000 years ago. Jesus has already won the victory, already saved His people, already sent His Spirit Yet we yearn for our final redemption. We yearn for the defeat of death. We yearn for remaining sin to be crushed. We yearn for suffering to cease. We yearn for tears to be wiped away forever. Amen? Jesus has already won the promised kingdom, yet we long for the kingdom He's promised. Already? Not yet. The already not yet tension is a fundamental aspect of our faith. Some of the darkest perversions of the Christian faith are a product of a failure to, or, or a refusal to acknowledge the distinction between the already and the not yet. They have forgotten the nature of our situation. Take, for instance, the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. Proponents will Proclaim At the cross, Jesus has secured your inheritance. By His wounds, you are healed. If God was willing to offer His Son, how would He not also be willing to eagerly and graciously give you all things? Those are true statements, by the way. But we await their fulfillment because the kingdom is not yet. That's why we don't tell pig farmers in Uganda that if they'd only have faith, they'd be rich and their wives wouldn't have miscarriages. Because we live between two kingdoms. Someday, the people of God will inherit unspeakable wealth. Death will be defeated. We will be finally completely restored, but not yet. Yes, there is hope. There is fellowship. There are seasons of refreshing. But there is also suffering. There is also pain. And the unwavering promises of God will sustain us through the wilderness. In the midst of the not yet. You and I live our lives between two kingdoms. And that can be awkward and uncomfortable. But we must. We absolutely must do it well. Christ commissions his people to be obedient in the midst of the not yet. He asks us to follow him. To proclaim him. 
to be ambassadors on his behalf, to be ministers of his reconciliation, to carry burdens to represent him, to image his sacrifice in marriage, to work together to build up his body. All of this in the wilderness between two kingdoms. You cannot faithfully follow Christ without faithfully navigating the space between the already and the not yet. And today we're going to learn how. The passage we're studying today is about life between two kingdoms. The kingdom of Saul and the kingdom of David. The people of Israel were now free from the tyranny of the madman. The vestiges of Saul's kingdom were crumbling. And rumors of the promised king, the better king, were traded in every marketplace. Memories spoken fireside of young David, the shepherd slayer of giants. The faithful God of Israel had kept his promised king of Israel safe in the wilderness. And surely expectations must have been building. I can imagine what they must have been thinking. Surely it's time. Saul has fallen. The madman has fallen. Surely the promised king is coming. David will wear the crown. Surely the might of God will work to free his people from the oppression of the nations by the strong hand of David. Surely our wait is over. Our passage begins at the height of that expectation. David, who had just heard that Saul and his sons had fallen in battle, is preparing to cross over the boundaries of Israel for the first time in years. Now we're going to pick up our passage here. Now I sent out a message on the realm. I hope you saw it. But we're not going to be able to read the whole text today because we're going from chapter 2 to chapter 5. But I'm doing that on purpose because this is one story with one very important point. Um, So pick it up in 2 Samuel chapter 2. Read together with me. After this, David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. David said, To which shall I go up? And he said, To Hebron. So David went up there, and his two wives also, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David brought up his men who were with him, everyone with his household, and they lived in the towns of Hebron. And the men of Judah came... And there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. Now this is a sweet moment for a number of reasons. First, David and his men have been outcasts for many long months. They were exiled by a madman, forced to wander in the wilderness and to dwell among a pagan people. Though this was the promised king, David was forced from his home And from his people, and has every day longed to return to the promised land. And finally, after years as an outcast, victorious David is free to return to his people, to his land, to his tribe. That's sweet. And I think as readers, we've been waiting for this moment for a while. But what I think is even more moving is that David, every step of the way toward his kingdom, is drawing nearer to God. Here we see that David, if anything, is more intimately dependent 
on the counsel and care of Yahweh than ever before. Before deciding to return, he asks God. Before deciding where to go, he asks God. He trusts God. And he depends on God. And he knows that without God, his kingdom has no hope. And that's a lovely juxtaposition. Because Saul's blood cries out from the trampled soil of the battlefield. Saul's memory serves as a reminder that faithlessness will torpedo a kingdom. So the prayers of David are a display, a reminder that David is the better king because he's the king chasing after the heart of God. When he arrives at Hebron, he's received with the warm welcome of a people relieved. Their king has finally arrived. David and his family and his men settle in the midst of the tribe of Judah and the people celebrate. David is anointed and begins to rule, but only over one tribe. This is where the story shifts, and the camera pans to the remaining tribes of Israel. Now you may remember that after the death of Saul, the Philistine people paraded his naked corpse throughout the territories and before their idols. Finally, the stripped and beheaded bodies of Saul and his sons are pinned to a wall in a Philistine city. When the valiant men of Jabesh-Gilead heard of this humiliation, they strapped on their swords and they made ready to do justice. Overnight they traveled long miles to retrieve the bodies of Saul and his sons and to give them proper burial. Now David hears of this act of valor and he sends a message to the people of Jabesh-Gilead. He blesses them in the name of the Lord for showing loyalty toward their fallen king. He praises their courage And he encourages them to valiantly embrace his coming kingdom. But that isn't what happens. Abner. Abner, Saul's cousin and closest advisor, the general over Saul's armies, has become quite a powerful man among the people of Israel. At Saul's worst, when when his madness had corrupted his mind almost completely, Abner must have absorbed much of the daily work of a king. He was known as the king's right hand, the king's mighty right arm. He spoke and ruled on the king's behalf. And now that Saul and his eldest sons were dead, the people of Israel looked to Abner for direction. Keep in mind that the anointing of the young David is now popular knowledge. Everyone in the kingdom has heard that Samuel, the legendary prophet of God, had rejected Saul's house and promised a better king. And everyone in the kingdom had heard that young David, the shepherd, the giant slayer, had been anointed as the coming king of Bethlehem at Bethlehem. Everyone had heard, including Abner. Now it isn't yet made explicit that Abner believed these rumors. But at this point in the story, we know one thing for certain. Whether or not Abner believed the stories of God's promises, he was acting defiantly against them. Abner, rather than rallying the people of Israel to embrace David, chooses to anoint Ishbosheth as king. So we don't know much about Ishbosheth, except that he was a son of Saul. We know that he wasn't invited or expected to fight the Philistines alongside his father or brothers. That could mean a few things. 
Either he was in some way physically incapable of going to war, or he was held back as the last remaining son of Saul so that the house of Saul would have a remnant in case things got really, really bad. Well, things did get really, really bad on the battlefields. And now Ishbosheth is Saul's only surviving son. Interestingly, the Bible doesn't have much to say about Ishbosheth. We aren't told that he ever does anything positive in the two years he reigned. In fact, we're only ever told that he's anointed by Abner, that he complains to Abner, and that he takes naps. <laughs> not kidding. This guy is not at the top of his class. Ishbosheth's reign is tepid, stagnant, and fruitless. Meanwhile, Abner's reputation grows. His social, political, and military might swells. And we're right to expect, I think, that Abner means for Ishbosheth to act merely as a shell, a facade, to permit Abner to continue to enjoy the power and the wealth and the might of a king without perhaps enjoying the title. Abner's declaration of Ishbosheth as the next king of Israel is functionally a declaration of civil war because Judah had already declared that David was the rightful king of God's people. You're supposed to see this as you read. In fact, a clear distinction is made between the false kingdom of Ishbosheth and the true kingdom of David. When David is declared king, it is because the people of God rise up and celebrate in unity. When Ishbosheth is declared king, the text merely says that Abner took Ishbosheth and, quote, made him king. Very early in this story, we're meant to see that the people long for the throne of David, but Abner, acting individually as an expression of his individual political influence, makes Ishbosheth king in defiance of the people's will. And Abner's political direction is the first in a series of aggressive actions to undermine the kingdom of David. After declaring Ishbosheth the next king of Israel, Abner musters the remaining troops of Israel's army and makes a long trek, nearly 23 miles, to the boundaries of David's territory, geared up for war. Lining up his troops on the far side of a body of water, opposite David's men, Abner means to pick a fight. And that much is clear in the text. Read with me from chapter 2, verse 12. And Abner said to Joab, Let the young men arise and compete before us. And Joab said, Let them arise. When they arose and passed over by number, twelve for Benjamin, and Ishbosheth the son of Saul, and twelve the servants of David, and each caught his opponent by the head and thrust his sword in his opponent's side so they fell down together. Therefore the place was called Hekath Hasurim, which is at Gibeon. And the battle was very fierce that day. And Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. Joab and his men waited to discover the intentions of Abner leading an army ready for war. Perhaps he was here to counsel, to discuss terms of peace with the tribe of Judah. But when he speaks, it becomes clear that he's out for blood. Similar to the battlefield of Goliath, 
Abner proposes that Joab choose 12 men to represent the army rather than staging an all-out war. His armies have suffered many recent defeats and Abner is here attempting to demonstrate without the loss of many men that his forces are stronger and more capable than David's. This is a power play. A particularly heartless one because he's proposing that 24 men risk their lives. The lives of Israelite brothers in order to demonstrate his personal might. Joab agrees and the soldiers who go toe-to-toe exhibit a tragic scene of meaningless bloodshed. 24 strong men of valor fall because of one man's violence. And as they watch their brothers fall needlessly, both armies rise up in civil war. One thing's been clear from the first paragraphs of Samuel's story. Every episode has resounded with the same theme. Not by might will man prevail, but by the faithfulness of Yahweh and to his anointed king. So, not unexpectedly, we see Abner's forces crushed in this conflict. David's faithful army prevails, losing only seven men besides their initial contestants, while Abner's forces are dealt a crushing blow. In the midst of battle, Joab's brother, a guy named Asahel, begins to chase Abner personally. Asahel is fast. He's known for his speed. And while Abner flees the battlefield, Asahel quickly gains ground in a foot race. Abner's violence has caught up with him, and now he's placed in a precarious position. If he strikes the vulnerable Asahel while fleeing, he'll face the wrath of Joab, the mighty general of David's mighty forces. But if he doesn't strike Asahel, he'll be killed or captured. Abner, whose capacity for self-protection knows no bounds, launches his spear backwards and impales Asahel in an act so violent that it makes these seasoned men of war stop cold. But Abner keeps running. After hours of combat, Abner, again in a desperate feat of self-preservation, shouts to Joab to cease his pursuit and, and, and call off his men. Joab, who doesn't yet know about his fallen brother, agrees to cease hostilities on the grounds that these are the brothers of Israel. There are three scenes in the story of Abner, and this is how the first one ends. In short term, we're told that Abner is the chief architect of Israel's civil war, that he's an instigator of unnecessary and reprehensible violence. And we're told that he's a coward. The next scene in Abner's story further develops our suspicions that he's absolutely the worst. This time he's confronted by Ishbosheth. In one of the few scenes that Ishbosheth actually does or says anything. I want you to pick up the passage here. Read with me from chapter 3, starting in verse 6. While there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner was making himself strong in the house of Saul. Now Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah. And Ishbosheth said to Abner, Why have you gone into my father's concubine? And Abner 
was very angry over the words of Ishbosheth and said, Am I a dog's head of Judah? To this day I keep showing steadfast love to the house of Saul, your father, to his brothers, to his friends, and have not given you into the hand of David. And yet you charge me today with a fault concerning a woman. God do so to Abner and more also if I do not accomplish for David what the Lord has sworn to him. To transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan to Beersheba. And Ishbosheth could not answer Abner another word because he feared him. And Abner sent messengers to David on his behalf saying, To whom does the land belong? Make your covenant with me, and behold, my hand shall be with you to bring all over all Israel to you. Okay, let's step back for a moment and reflect, because this passage is about as revealing as they come. First, the passage begins with a noteworthy sentence. While there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner was making himself strong in the house of Saul. So we've already been given a pretty convincing profile of Abner. We know that he's manipulating the political scene every step of the way. That he's working against the true king of Israel in an effort to maintain his own personal political and military strength. But here we have it explicitly. The civil war effort is the means by which Abner is consolidating power. He's leveraging the lives of men and women to stay in power. He is, indeed, a grim reflection of wicked King Saul shedding the blood of God's people in order to wear an illegitimate crown. And that's despicable. But it gets worse. Ishbosheth confronts Abner because he's taken Saul's concubine as his own object of sexual gratification. And in the ancient Middle East, this is a political power play in the most explicit terms to undermine the legitimacy of an heir, to claim the throne for your own, you take the king's concubine. It's reprehensible and it's wicked. And everyone around Abner and everyone around Ishbosheth sees it for what it is. Abner is one step closer to overthrowing the illegitimate throne of Saul. When he discovers the plot against him, Ishbosheth rightly accuses Abner of political revolution. And if you couldn't think any less of Abner, get ready for the body blow. Reread with me Abner's response. God, do so to Abner and more also, if I do not accomplish for David what the Lord has sworn to him, to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and to set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah. Do you see it? Do you see what these words imply? Abner has just admitted that he knew and that he believed that God had promised the kingdom to David, not to Ishbosheth. He admits that he's believed it from the outset. So every drop of blood spilt in this civil war can be traced back to a man who has orchestrated revolution against the will of God. Abner has fought kicking and screaming against God's promise since the day David crossed back into the land of Israel. He knew that God had granted the kingdom to David. 
And yet he orchestrated a pretender king to divide the people in an effort to maintain a position of political influence. And here, in a staggering display of self-interest, Abner flips on a whim because he's offended. He, in a moment, decides to end the civil war he, he started. Not because he admits that God is sovereign. Not because he believes that the people of God are only safe in the stewardship of the better king. No, he flips because his honor is offended. He leaves the presence of the pretender king to rally the elders of Israel to proclaim David as king instead. And listen to his words. Pick it up in verse 17. And Abner conferred with the elders of Israel, saying, For some time past you have been seeking David as king over you. Now then, bring it about. For the Lord has promised David, saying, By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. It's breathtaking, isn't it? What Abner, acknowledge, what, what Abner is acknowledging when he speaks these words. Not only has he orchestrated a civil war to thwart the promises of God. But here he admits that he's done so against the wishes of the people of Israel. For some time past you have been seeking David as king over you. Implied, but that wasn't what I wanted. That would have cost me power and influence and might and wealth. I didn't want it. So I spent my time and my resources and I manipulated the people around me to spill the blood of God's people. I did it all to hold my position of power, to keep my illegitimate throne. But now I've changed my mind. So let's go bring about God's promises. There is perhaps no character more explicitly and intentionally wicked than Abner in the book of Samuel. He is, on purpose, the singular enemy of God, ever manipulating God's people, ever deceiving, ever undermining the glory of God's chosen king. There is perhaps no clearer foreshadow of Satan. Abner reminds us of our Wicked enemy, doesn't he? Satan, though he knows that Christ has won the final victory, works to undermine and humiliate and deceive the people of God. The final scene of Abner's story unfolds at David's table. Abner is indeed true to his word. He goes to David to leverage his influence over the people of Israel to receive a powerful position in David's house. Abner returns David's estranged wife, Michal, and promises a united kingdom. David and Abner feast together in hope of perpetual peace. You might even expect that this was the happy end of Abner's story. As he rides away from David's home, Abner enjoys a privileged position in the affections of the anointed king of Israel, though he orchestrated a civil war against him for years. You might even question whether, this, whether, whether there was any justice for so wicked a man. 
for someone who had so unambiguously corrupted the people of God. But don't forget Joab. Joab, the mighty man who leads the valiant armies of David, has lost a beloved brother by the treacherous spear of this wicked fiend. And though David is quick to reconcile, Joab is hardly as forgiving. As soon as Abner leaves in peace, Joab and his men arrive home from a raid on David's enemies. Now read with me from verse 22. Just then the servants of David arrived with Joab from a raid, bringing much spoil with them. But Abner was not with David at Hebron, for he had sent him away, and he had gone in peace. When Joab and all the army was with him, it was told Joab, Abner the son of Ner came to the king, and he has let him go, and he has gone in peace. Then Joab went to the king and said, What have you done? Behold, Abner came to you. Why is it that you have sent him away so that he is gone? You know that Abner the son of Ner came to deceive you, and to know you're going out and coming in, and to know all that you are doing. When Joab came out from David's presence, he sent messengers after Abner, and they brought him back from the cistern of Syrah. But David did not know about it. And when Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside into the midst of the gate to speak with him privately. And there he struck him in the stomach so that he died for the blood of Asahel, his his brother. Joab couldn't resist an opportunity for vengeance. And so Abner's end was much like the end of Asahel, struck in the stomach and left to die on the side of the road. It's a poetic end and highly ironic. The man whose lust for power spent the lives of many sons of Israel dies alone on the side of the road in an act as meaningless as his rebellion. He has earned this death. Let me be clear. Joab was wrong to seek vengeance. This was a murder in cold blood. David hears of Abner's murder and tears his clothes and weeps over this lost life because he had sent him away in peace. Vouching for the safe passage of an enemy was an important display of honor. And by ignoring it, Joab risks yet another civil war. So David makes clear to all that he wasn't involved in the murder of Abner. He calls down the wrath of God upon Joab and his brothers for this cold-blooded act of vengeance. And the people of Israel were grateful to learn that Abner's death wasn't the manipulative act of a deceptive king. But the sin of Joab in this cold-blooded vengeance is dwarfed by Abner's breathtaking display of seditious wickedness, waging war against the promises of God, despite the will of the people of God. Abner has earned his end and worse. When Ishbosheth learns of Abner's death, he's terrified. If it wasn't explicit enough, it's clear now that Ishbosheth's kingdom was merely a prop to legitimize the tyranny of Abner. Left in the wake of Abner's murder is a powerful, pretend, powerless pretender king. Israel's distraught because they have long sought the kingdom of David, and yet they remain under the tyranny of a powerless prop. As for Ishbosheth, few figures are portrayed as powerless and passive as he is. The final episode of Ishbosheth's life shows him 
as weak and worthless as ever, taking an afternoon nap while his kingdom crumbles. Two of his wicked captains, Rechab and Banna, sneak into his room and cut off his head, thinking that by this act they'd earn a place in David's house. They don't know David very well. When the men deliver the head of Ishbosheth to David, he responds in precisely the way we expect for him to respond. As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity, when one told me, Behold, Saul is dead, and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and killed him at Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more, when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house on his bed, Shall I not now require his blood at your hand and destroy you from the earth? And David commanded his young men, and they killed them, and cut off their hands and feet, and hanged them beside the pool at Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner. Throughout this story, David has remained spotless. His virtue in the face of sedition is recognized by every tribe in Israel. When Abner orchestrates civil war, David trusted the promises of God to establish his kingdom. When Joab undermines his orders and murders his new ally in cold blood, David trusted the justice of God to avenge this evil deed. When wicked men stifle the life of Saul's last son, David embodies the wrath of God as the rightful king of Israel. Faithfulness exhibited openly was a breath of fresh air for the broken people of Israel. For decades they had submitted to the faithless tyranny of Saul, of Abner, of Ishbosheth. As the line of Saul is stifled, the faithful response of David confirms all of the people's building expectations. They gather together, all the people gather together in Hebron, all of Israel to proclaim that David is their rightful king. This story begins and ends at Hebron. It begins and ends with the proclamation that David is king. And every moment in between the proclamation that David is king and the consummation of David's kingdom is awkward and painful and punctuated by sorrow. How exhausted must they be after seven years, after civil war, after unnecessary bloodshed, after political manipulation, after vengeance and treachery and treason? How frequently must they have been worn thin, emotionally spent, waiting for the promised kingdom? What kept them from despair? This story, the story of the wilderness between two kingdoms, is united by a single theme. In the midst of the anarchy, in the midst of the civil war, in the midst of cold-blooded vengeance, this story resonates with echoes of the promise of God. We aren't allowed as readers to forget the promise of God to establish David's kingdom because it's everywhere. It's why God speaks directly to David. It's why he sends him prophetically to Hebron to be anointed king. It's why they anoint him king. It's why David's men valiantly 
fight and win a mighty victory. It's the, it's the content of Abner's rebuke when he reminds Ishbosheth that God has sworn to give David the kingdom. It's the content of Abner's, Abner's appeal to the elders of Israel who have longed for the kingdom of David, which God had promised years ago. It's implied when David proclaims his not yet kingdom forever guiltless of the cold-blooded vengeance of Joab. It punctuates David's mourning over the life lost, the lost lives of his enemies, saying, I was gentle today, though anointed king. It is the reason that the people of Israel seek David at Hebron, long for David as king, gather together to proclaim him king. It's the content of their appeal to David at Hebron. And it's the source of their celebration when they proclaim him their king. The promise of God is everywhere. It's woven throughout this story. In fact, all of these sorrowful stories are colors woven into the tapestry of God's promise to establish the kingdom of David. You cannot read these stories without consistent reminder that God has promised to do it. Don't forget, God has promised to do it. Don't despair at Abner's wickedness. God has promised to do it. Don't despair at Joab's sin. God has promised to do it. Don't despair when the orchestration of civil war seems to be crumbling the plan. God has promised to do it. What kept the faithful sons and daughters from despair in the wilderness between two kingdoms? The promise of God. He has promised to establish the kingdom of David. He has promised and He is faithful to do it. When the civil war was bloodiest, they were reminded of the promise of God. When the treason was highest, they were reminded of the promise of God. When the house of David was compromised, they were reminded of the promise of God. When wicked men stole the life of Saul's last son, they were promised they were reminded of the promise of God. The promise of God is the bread and water of the faithful in the wilderness between two kingdoms. And we, who live between two kingdoms, must cling to the promise of God. Just as David, just as David is a type of Christ, so the kingdom of David is a type of Christ's kingdom. Our great hope As the people of Israel longed for the reign of David, so the people of God longed for the reign of Christ their King. As David was declared King by Judah, so Christ was declared King at the cross. And just like the people of Israel, the sons and daughters of God have seen many long winters awaiting the consummation of the promised kingdom. A seditious enemy haunted them orchestrated civil war, waging war against the promises of God. We too have a seditious enemy. In their division, the people of Israel raged against one another. We too suffer from division. Bitter sin threatens the peace of the faithful. We too fight remaining sin. Our only hope in the wilderness between the already and the not yet is to remember the promise of God. There is right now division among God's people. This is true broadly 
and locally. Though we have one Lord, one spirit, one baptism, we are many denominations, many confessions. You cannot scan the recent publications of even American evangelical Christians without recognizing agonizing disputes. In dark seasons, we rage. We make national news. We split associations in half. At the worst moments, we seem hardly able to disagree without venomous exchanges. How do we continue to hope in moments like these? We remember God's promise. Christ will return. God has promised it. God will establish his kingdom on earth. And all division will cease. And every tear will be wiped away. We must cling to the promise of God. That all the venom and bitterness will instantaneously cease when Christ returns. It is promised. Sometimes we even see it in our own church. We struggle to understand one another. At times we disagree on terms, on methods, on political decisions, on how we should read this or that passage, on how to think about race and ethnicity, on how to relate to the poor. What keeps the people of Redeemer faithful when they long for unity? We must cling to the promise of God. We will be one as the Trinity is one when Christ returns. It is promised. Every moment when we fight for grace, for courtesy, for love in the midst of disagreement, we must lean heavily upon the promise of God who is faithful to unite the citizens of the kingdom of Christ. We fight remaining sin. And at moments, that battle seems desperate. Why? Why, Lord, can I not seem to claim total final victory over my sin? Our words do harm. Our passions rage. We quarrel. We crave. We stumble. Oh, how desperately we long for the end of sin. How do we keep fighting? What keeps the people of God faithful when they're faced with the dark corners of their own hearts? You must cling to the promise of God. The righteous man may fall several, seven times, but he will rise again. When Christ returns, all sin will be vanquished with a word. That's the power of the promise. Christ will finish the work that he started. It is promised by God. We face a mighty enemy, Satan, the power of this dark world, who prowls about seeking an opportunity to devour the faithful, to undermine the work of God, to deceive the elect. He knows, perhaps better than anyone, how completely he has been defeated. His kingdom is crumbling, and yet he rages. Deception of every sort, treachery of every sort, manipulation of every sort. 
He tempts the faithful to adultery, to theft, to lie, to steal, kill, and destroy. How will we resist him? How will we faithfully follow Christ when Satan's schemes ruin marriages, orchestrate suffering, oppress the least of these? We must cling to the promise of God. He has sworn to seize the dragon and bind him. He has prepared a lake of fire for our treacherous enemy. When Christ returns, Satan will be defeated. He has promised it. The promise of God is our bread and water in the wilderness between the already and the not yet. On the days of victory, remember the promise of God as a foretaste and shout it to everyone around you. And on the days where you suffer, on the days where you stumble, on the days when our dear friends are dying, we remember the promise of a coming kingdom where these sorrows and sufferings will no longer be. Amen? And celebrate this coming kingdom at the table. This podcast is brought to you by Redeemer Church, a community of believers in Fort Worth, Texas, committed to equipping God's people to delight in God's glory and declare that glory to our neighbors and the nations. For more information, visit our website at RedeemerFortWorth.org.